Thanks, Andrew. Now, if you have your thick Bibles there, you'll probably be better off with the thick Bible today, and you might like to open to page 550. That is the whole Bible. Uh, thank you very much, uh, William, for your welcome and words. It's been a great pleasure to be here, and uh, I've particularly enjoyed this Tuesday lunchtime service and being with you. Uh, over these weeks, I've been dealing, I think, with big questions, and we've dealt with eight big questions, and today we come to the last of the big questions, the ninth big question. And it comes from an English author, Christopher Isherwood. Now, I don't know if you know the work of Christopher Isherwood, but he wrote the novel Goodbye to Berlin, which became the musical, probably better known as a musical, which starred Liza Minnelli, entitled Cabaret. Uh, Christopher Isherwood said that there was only one question really worthy of asking one another. There was only one really big question in life, but he said we rarely ask that question of one another because it is far too brutally confronting. The question Isherwood said is that in the view of the fact that life is so unbearable and in many ways, how do you go on living? What keeps you going? How do you bear the unbearable life. In view of all the sufferings one faces and all the complexities of life, how do you go on living? Now, how would you answer that? When I read that, I thought that is an interesting question. How would I answer that? Why do I go on living? Is it love? Uh, is it family? Is it just, well, you've got to survive and we've got that bred into us, the survival instinct? Is it the absurdist idea that life just hands you a hand like you have a hand of cards and you've got to handle it, whatever you're handed with. How do you respond to Isherwood's question? How do you go on living? Now, one of our daughters and her husband has been a missionary in, uh, have been missionaries in Mongolia. And on one of our visits to Mongolia, we went out onto the flat steps and we visited a family of nomadic herders in Agur. I won't take you through what was served to us to eat or anything like that, but it was a brand new experience for us. Can you imagine taking that nomadic herder from Mongolia and taking him out of his environment and somehow placing him under Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square and expecting him to live there quite alone and independently? He knows no English. He's never heard of England. He's never seen all the sights that we just take for granted. To do that to such a man from such a state would be quite cruel. And yet, do we do that to ourselves? Are we cruel to ourselves that we expect that we will live happily and sufficiently and fulfilled in God's world, and yet we do not know God? How do you go on living? What is the key to a fresh start? Now, I've now been in England for nearly three months, and I observe English. I sit in coffee shops and just watch English people. It's a fascinating study. And very much, I think, we are like that. And people often ask me, oh, the Queen is wonderful. She's been reigning for 60 years. I say, yes, I know. She's our Queen as well. In fact, she is more our Queen in Australia than your Queen, you know that. Because in 1999, we had a national referendum and we re-elected her as our monarch. Have you ever done that? That's pretty good, isn't it? So we are avid royal f followers, and on the Jubilee weekend, oh, we just couldn't get enough of it. We went down and watched the flotilla, and then we came back from the Thames, and the road was blocked, and we waited for Her Majesty, and the whole royal family came past. It was a windy, miserable day, as you know. The Queen alone had her window down and waved, so we were able to wave excitedly at her. 
The next night, we watched the concert on television. The next day, Tuesday, we were glued to our television. St Paul's Cathedral, Mansion House, Westminster, then on the balcony at Buckingham Palace. It was wonderful. And then at the end of the day, my wife is in another room of the house. BBC, six o'clock. The Queen comes on again. I said to Maxine, quick, come out. She's here again. We couldn't get enough. Maxine rushed out and we heard the words, thank you for these last four days. I've been very humbled by them. Thank you to all those who've organised it. And then she said, thank you all. That's it. Thank you all. Thank you all. Are you going to tell us who really was your favourite Prime Minister? Are you going to tell us if you could vote, you'd actually vote for the Conservatives or the Labor Party? Thank you all. Would you like to give us some reflection on the past 60 years? Thank you all. Not a bit of it. Thank you all. That was precisely one-fifth the length of what Barack Obama said in honour of the Queen, but it's her 60th Diamond Jubilee. Thank you all. And I thought, isn't it just like the English? <laughs> Non-effusive, masters of the understatement, and isn't it just like us? We see our great bowler, Shane Warne. We say of him, not a bad bowler. We say of our wealthy people, they've got a few quid. You can imagine if the first man on the moon was an English astronaut. What did Armstrong say? One small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. What would an English astronaut say? Oh, not a bad little achievement. Wonder if they get match of the day up here. Something like that. See, it's so understated. In fact, we are suspicious of people who overstate things. So it was typical, wasn't it? Thank you all. That's it. Here's a big question. How do you handle life? What keeps you living? All the wisdom of the ages, all the wisdom of the Greek philosophers, and here's one sentence. And I put it to you that this one sentence encapsulates all the wisdom which comes from God. What keeps you going? Here it is. Wait for it. The God who made you loves you. The God who made you loves you. Now let's look in our Bibles, if you've got your Bible open there to page 550. Here in Psalm 24, a magnificent psalm of praise to the majestic God. The Psalms, the book of reflective poetry. And David, the author, the king of Israel, is writing of the might of God and the glory of God and who can come before God, those who seek him, what they must know. But look at the gateway to this psalm. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 tells us of God's ownership and verse 2 tells us the ground of such ownership. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's, everything in it. All who live in it belong to him, lock, stock and barrel, it's his. On what basis? Verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. There is the basis of God's ownership. He made it, he established it, it is his, we are his, our origin is in God. And immediately in those two verses, which are great truths, we see these truths. One. I recognise that I am created. I did not spring from random purposelessness. I was created intelligently and I was created purposefully. That's the first thing to come out of those two verses. 
The second thing to come out of those two verses is that I am known. Sometimes in life you might think no one understands me. The psalmist says God made me and God knows me. All that I am, my capacity to relate, my capacity to appreciate, my capacity to love springs from him. When I meet an English person, I think I'm like that. But when I meet God and I know God, I recognize, yes, I'm like that. I've been made in his image. So according to the Bible, the fool is not the person who is unintelligent. The fool is the person who is out of touch with reality. He says there is no God. The wise person is the one who reverences God. I am created. I am known. And the third truth to come out of these two verses is that I belong. I am his. I belong to the one who made me. I'm not, I have not been made to be at my best independent. I am at my best when I'm in relationship. And therefore, what makes me go on living? I know that this is God's world, that I am a part of it, that he made it and he made me. It belongs to him and I belong to him too. And knowing that, I find my real center. There is my foundation. There is my core. How cruel to take a Mongolian nomad and to place him in Trafalgar Square. How cruel we are to ourselves to live in God's world and not realize that I am created, I am known, and I belong. The God who made me, look at the second part of the sentence, loves me. Now flip over, if you would, uh, in your Bibles to page 1070. Page 1070, you'll see that there are two verses at the foot of the page and one at the top of page 1071. Not only am I created by this God, not only am I known by this God, but verse 16 at the top of page 1071 says that I am loved by this God in all my unattractiveness, I am loved. Now, there is one succinct verse of scripture. Someone said, if you're looking for the Bible in miniature, there it is, John chapter 3, verse 16. In fact, the Gideons, who produce 80 million Bibles a year and place them in hotels, prisons, hospitals, in the front of every Gideon's Bible, they provide John 3, 16 in 20 different languages because here is the core of the Bible. Here is the Bible in miniature. When I watched the Atlanta Olympic Games in 1996, I thought, what would I like to go to at the Sydney 2000 Olympics? And the event which caught my attention was the heavyweight male weightlifting, 105 kilo plus. So I applied for the tickets in Sydney and got synchronized swimming. <laughs> it was a bit of a disappointment. But I remember at Atlanta, at that moment where this Bulgarian man was bulging to lift the weight to establish the world record and the Olympic record and to beat the Russian and win the gold medal, someone jumped out and in front of his face just simply placed the words, John 3.16. He missed the lift himself. Perhaps he could look at the replay. But this was something even more important than a world record. Here was something even more important than a gold medal. John chapter 3, 16. He wanted that man, the world, to know that God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The God who made the world loves the world and he loves the world so much that he gives his only son so that if you believe in him, you will cease from perishing and living apart from God and you will have eternal life. Look at the verbs in that verse. God loved. That's a shock, isn't it? The world he made is in rebellion against him. The world he made shakes its fist at him. The world he made ignores him. But God comes back and loves. The world is like an adolescent who doesn't speak but grunts. The world is like an adolescent who rebels and who denies and who rejects. But God is like the loving parent who comes back and keeps coming back with words of love. I value you. He persists in the face of being ignored in a way that I wouldn't persist. God loves. It's an undeserved love. But is it word only? No, look at what it says. God loves the world so much that he gave. This is not just in word. It is not just romantic words. This is a persistent love. And the proof of the persistence of this love is that God gives his only son for us. Now, my wife and I have five children. You put any of those children into a life-threatening situation and you're in a life-threatening situation and I can only save one, well, you're on your own, aren't you? I will always save my child. Here we see in this verse that God turns his back on the son he loves in order that his forgiving love and mercy can go out to us who are the guilty rebels before him. Is that not amazing love? All other gods can claim love and mercy, but God alone can take you to an empty cross and God alone can take you to an empty tomb. He backs his word up with action. I am loved. The extent of the love is that God would give his son for me. The God who made me is the God who loves me. And the cross is the constant reminder and demonstration of that love. We used to teach our children a lovely little chorus. And it goes like this. The perfect friend, the one who knows the worst about you, but loves you just the same. There's only one who loves like that, and Jesus is his name, his wonderful, wonderful name. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, was a bit of a practical joker. On one occasion, he decided that he would send a telegram to 12 of his best friends. He knew nothing, but he wrote the telegram, and it simply said, flee, for all is revealed. And six of his friends made immediate plans to leave the country. Conan Doyle knew nothing about what was going on. But it was a reminder that in our life, perhaps there are things that we sit on and we hide and we would not want to be revealed. The perfect friend knows. But he loves you just the same. It's amazing truth that God loves you. Here are three verbs. God loved. God gave so that we might believe. Not that you do something. Not that you contribute something. Life as the creator intended it to be doesn't come to, my, to me by my doing something, 
but my believing someone, my resting on someone, my trusting and depending on someone. And as soon as that happens, I will cease to perish and I will have eternal life, life that goes on forever. The God who made you loves you, so stop ignoring him, stop resisting him. Recognise that he is your creator and rest in his love. But you say, well, now, Mr. Preacher, what am I to believe? Well, look at the two verses on the previous page. There it tells you what we are to believe about Jesus. It takes us back to a section in the Old Testament where the people of Israel were complaining against God and complaining against their leader, Moses. They were at Mount Hor. And as judgment upon them, God sent venomous snakes amongst them. And some of them were bitten, some of them died, and the others were very ill. And so God, Moses interceded to God on behalf of the people. And God said, this is what you do. You take a bronze pole, you fashion a serpent on the pole, you hold the pole before the people, and those who look to the pole with the serpent fashion on it will live. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything I'd less like to see if I were suffering from venomous snake bite than a snake. But by looking at the snake on the pole, I am recognising that God's judgment on my complaining and grumbling and whinging is right. And if I do what God says and look to the snake on the pole, I will be healed. Now see what John says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You look at the snake... And it reminds you that God's judgment on your complaining against him and Moses is right. It's a way of repentance and you'll be healed. You look at the son on the cross and you'll be saved because you see on the cross the one who is suffering and going through what I deserved for my rebellion against God. Look to the snake and be healed. Look to the son who took your place. It was for you. Recognise that it was for you, that God is treating his son the way you deserve to be treated on the cross, and you will be saved. What makes you go on living? The God who made you loves you. I've been through the writings of Christopher Isherwood, and I haven't found anywhere where Christopher Isherwood provides any glimpse of an answer to his own question. It is a brutally confronting question. What keeps me going in life? It is that I know that the God who made me is the God who loves me. On Saturday, I was at a church house party, get together for Christians, and a man came up to me and said, hello, bro. Bro? He said, yes. He said, I became a Christian. I was in prison for two and a half years, and I cried out to God. I said, God, you owe me. I've been an honest drug dealer, not a dishonest one. And I said, what is an honest drug dealer? I've never belted anyone up and I've always charged a fair price. Oh, good on you. That's very commendable. I've been an honest drug dealer. And then he discovered that the God who made him loved him. Helen Rosevear, a young graduate in medicine from Cambridge University, goes down to Africa, to the Belgian Congo, when the revolution comes in the Belgian Congo, the revolutionary soldiers come, take her from a hospital, and they do unspeakable things to this young white doctor. What is her gasping message to them? I'll tell you what her message was. The God who made you is going to judge you to eternity. No, it wasn't that. 
Helen Rosevear gasped out to those men who were doing unspeakable things to her. The God who made you loves you. The God who made you loves you. A very famous Australian who was a photographer who created so many of the great national iconic photographs of Australians at war in World War II in the Pacific area was a man by the name of Damien Parra. In his autobiography, he talks about before the war, before he was known, he goes to one of the major newspaper groups in Sydney looking for a job. They interviewed him and they said, do you have any ambitions? He said, I've just got three ambitions. One, to know God, to live for him, and when I die, to be with him forever in eternity. He said, I didn't get the job. They were looking for someone more permanently. <laughs> but did you get his ambitions? To know the God who made me, to live for the God who made me, and then when I die, go to be with him in eternity. That's what makes me go on living. The God who made me love me, loves me. It is cruel, friends, to live in a world without knowing God. Don't be cruel to yourself. It is tragic to be loved and to go through life never realising it. The God who made you is the God who loves you. Let's pray. You are the sovereign creator, God. You have created us so that from the very beginning of life, we will never lose conscious existence. We are created for eternity. We thank you for your loving way of telling us how we can cease from perishing and to have eternal life. We come to you, the God who made us, and submit before you as creator and Lord. We come before you, the Father God who loves us, and affirm our trust, our belief, our dependence, our reliance in the saving work of your Son. And we give you thanks for these things and for the food which we're going to enjoy now in our fellowship together in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, before we go to lunch, which is over here, I want to share with you just a few copies I have of a little tract which I'm sure you will find extremely helpful. It was through this tract that when my father was 50 years of age, he came home and told us all that he had read this tract and talked to his business partner and he had become a Christian. Now, if you're interested in knowing more about the gospel and the God who made you and loves you, and you would like to take that step of trusting in him for all eternity to cease to perish and have eternal life, I'll be down the front here. I've just got a few copies, and if you'd like to come, you can pick one up from me. Alternatively, you can get one from the office at the back from uh, Janet, the receptionist there. She has a number of them as well. But I've got a few copies here, and I'd love to give you one. Thanks very much. <laughs>